Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And you know these words? Maybe you can read them with me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lover of our souls, we want to live for you. Yet we so often find that our own flesh, unbelief, yoking up with the wrong things gets in the way. So we ask that today we would experience another weighty dose of gospel-given freedom at the cost of the cross. Lord, I ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding. Lord, that you would unstop our ears. Lord, that you would stir our hearts. Lord, would this time in this room not be in vain for anyone here? Would no one be marking their time and checking their phone and daydreaming about what's coming next? But Lord, in this moment, would we worship you in spirit and in truth? And we ask this in Jesus' name with deep hunger for more of you. Amen. All right, you can grab a seat. This passage is so well known, it really needs no introduction, right? But I do want to point out the obvious. This passage comes on the heels of last week's words of doom. Do you remember that? That Jesus issued to three cities. Three cities, frankly, that would have probably made the top 10 list of cities that you would want to raise a family in. But words of denunciation because they again and again and again shut their eyes to the light that Jesus gave them by way of his miracles and teaching. Well, the script is going to kind of flip, flip today. We're going to go from words of denunciation to an incredible invitation. We just heard it. From, and this was my title, but I think Pastor Cleek came up with a better one in your bulletin because I didn't have it in the rough draft. The king's yoke. That's what I want to preach to you about. Basically, we are going from words of woe to some sweet words of warmth. And we're going to hear gracious words about something that maybe we wrestle with, but it's for our good, the doctrine of election. We're going to see, following that, some awesome words on an incredible, unremarkable, uh, remarkable invitation. And finally, the call to submission for all who answer that invitation because of God's kind election. That's where we're going. You all with me? So let's dive in at point one. What we're going to see specifically about this matter of election is Jesus is praising the Father for the grace of election. Election being God choosing to save a people for his name. Let's begin in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, 
I thank you, Father. By the way, some five times in these first three or four verses, he calls God his Father. He goes on to say, Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ recognized the absolute sovereignty of the Lord God Almighty. He is Lord of heaven and earth. But then he says, and this is what he's praising him for or thanking him. By the way, thank you could be translated praise. It might be in the version you have on your lap. I praise you. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have done what? Hidden these things, these things being what he's been teaching, gospel truth, kingdom truth. You have hidden these things from who? The wise and understanding, and you've done what? You've revealed them to little children. So Jesus is praising the Father for hiding from some and revealing to others. And what's more, he not only says that's the Father's will, he actually, verse 27, calls it the Father's gracious will. Do you see that? Verse 26, rather, he says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, there may be somebody here, and your first inclination is to think, that just doesn't seem fair, right? I mean, what gives? You conceal from some, and you reveal from others. Doesn't seem very fair. Does anyone ever think that when they think about the doctrine of election? Answer would be, if you wrestle with it, yes. But I want to show you, and there's so many proofs I could give you, but just a few from this text and surrounding text, that there is nothing unjust about God choosing to hide these things from some and to reveal them to others. For one, as Jesus just prayed and prays to his Father, God is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's absolutely sovereign. He made everything. He is the ancient of days. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who never had a beginning because he's, he is eternally self-existent. He owes no one anything. So on that alone, God can do as he pleases. But second of all, more than that, humanity is not some friendly community of good, innocent people trying to get right with God, looking for God. No. Actually, we live in a world, a globe full of people in rebellion to God, full of sinful people. And if you need any proof for that, I would just encourage you to enroll in a history class at any level, and you will have that myth debunked. Or you can save yourself the time and money, and you can just take an honest look at your own heart and your own history. It's just like Paul says in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. And he gives us litany. He says, you know, their throat is a sepulcher. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. For we have determined that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the second thing I would say is, it's not like humanity is this kind of neutral tabla rosa. No, we are in enmity, enemies of God since the fall. What's even more, as we saw last week, every human being, without exception, has received light from God. 
We went to Romans 1, the light of creation. You look at creation, you look at how all the systems work together, and, and you say, this couldn't have just happened, just like this room didn't get set up by itself. No, there was an intelligent designer, right? There is a God, and yet people suppress the truth, it says in Romans 1. But we have the light of creation. Then we have the light of conscience, Meaning, even places that don't have the law of God come to establish some kind of law among themselves based in a conscience gifted by God in the Imago Dei package that we are. So not only the, the, the light of creation, not only the light of conscience, but the light of God's goodness, his patience, his mercy, and also his provision. We all have light, and that is enough light to cause any human being that's ever walked the face of the earth or will walk the face of the earth to seek God. And Jeremiah 29, 13 says that if you, God said, if you seek me with all your heart, you will what? You'll, you'll find me. Hebrews, it says, those that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, because we're all sinners, y'all with me? And because we all have some light, what we need to understand, family, as we wrestle and we're confronted with the doctrine of election, listen to me, that God treats no one worse than they deserve. And some people a whole lot better than they deserve. God treats no one worse than they deserve. And some people a whole lot better than they deserve. So if someone were to say, I don't think it's fair, I would say something like that. Something else somebody might say is, well, why do some people turn to Christ and other people don't? Here's what you don't want to do. There is the truth of God's sovereignty, right? I mean, it's here. But that's not the only answer, okay? In fact, what you find in Scripture is people praising God that for election, but you never see Peter, Paul, blaming people's lostness on God not choosing. No, he talks about their hearts, their hard hearts, right? So there's two sides of the coin. Yes, one side of the coin is divine sovereignty election. As it says in Romans 9, God says unabashedly, Paul says, God says through Paul, I will have mercy on, who I will have, on whom I will have mercy. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. But the other side of the coin is human responsibility, we have a responsibility to respond to the light that we're given. As we do that, we get more light. But what gets in the way of us, humanity, responding to the light? What gets in the way? I would say it's this foundational sin of pride and self-sufficiency. Did we not see that last week? We saw that these three top cities you would want to raise a family in, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Chorazin, we saw in last week's text that the sin that caused them to reject the light was the same sin, as he quotes from Isaiah 14, that caused Babylon, ancient Babylon, to reject the light, and it actually is the same sin that caused Satan to fall. Pride and self-sufficiency. And I just want to say that this comes out in the text this morning. So, again, let's, let's go to that contrast I asked you to emphasize by way of reading with me. He says, 
In this verse, yes, on divine election, he also says this, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and, he's, and you've revealed them to little children. Do you see that? Little children sometimes can be translated babes. Now, what is the contrast? Do you think he's just making a contrast between, you know, innocent little kids three and under and wise, self-sufficient people 30 and over? Do you think it's an age comparison that he's making there? Yes or no? No. Do you think it's an aptitude comparison? Like people who are really skilled and bring a lot to the table and those that don't. No, it's neither age nor aptitude, but what it is is attitude. Between those who are self-sufficient, it says, and think themselves rather wise, and those who know they're not. In fact, they're, they know they're needy and they, and they own it. And one commentator gave a great series of contrasts just to illustrate this point. It's the contrast between, you remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? So here's, here's the self-sufficient, the wise and so-called understanding. Father, I thank thee that I'm not like other chumps are, you know? I fast twice in a week and he just gives his laundry list of self-righteousness, right? But do you remember the tax collector? The chump that was being pointed out by way of a so-called prayer he dropped his head to the ground and he just beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's, that's, what, that's what's being illustrated here. It's a difference between the scripture savvy scribes who knew it all and those 12 regular guys Jesus chose to start his church with. It's a difference between Caiaphas. Tell us if you're the son of God. And the centurion who says, truly this man is the son of God. Remember that? It's the difference between the poor in spirit and the proud in heart. We have nothing, goose egg, nothing that makes us commendable to God as if we could earn his favor, family. You just can't. You can't. In fact, going back to the sin of pride and self-sufficiency, if you think that you in your pride, can contribute something that would make God accept you, according to 1 Peter 5, 5, that only widens the chasm between you and God. Because the Bible says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. God resists the wise and the understanding, and he gives grace to those who are nothing but little babes. That's, they, they know that they're needy and they're broken and all of that. If you know, listen, Here's, here's, here's how, this is where I think where divine election and, and human responsibility come together. If you know that you're not really wise, you're actually a fool. If you know you're not self-sufficient, if you know that you're needy, if you know that you're broken, that might just be an indication God is calling you to himself. That he is, if to use the words of the text, revealing, electing, all, all of that. And, and I was just feasting on this song all week, Come Ye Weary Sinners. You guys know that song? There's been a bunch of updates, Indelible Grace has a really good one. It was by Joseph Hart. 1769, he wrote it. Joseph Hart was raised in the church. But he got older, he rejected it all. In fact, I found this out. 
he wrote articles against evangelist John Wesley, trying to debunk what he said. But in 1767, he's under the preaching of another evangelist, George Whitfield, a Calvinistic evangelistic preacher, and he is soundly converted. And a few years later, he writes the song, Come Ye Weary, rooted in uh, Matthew 11, 25 through 26, Come Ye Weary and Heavy Laden, Broken and Bruised by the Fall. One version says, Lost and Ruined by the Fall. If you tarry until until, until you're better, You'll never come at all. Like you can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You can't wait until you're better. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In fact, one line that was added later is, not the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners Jesus came to call. And this other stanza, let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is for you. Do you know this line? To feel your need of him. This is how these things come together. Listen, if you find yourself aware of your sin, aware of your brokenness, knowing you can't do anything to make yourself right in the eyes of God except trust in Jesus, that's because God is calling you to himself. Is there somebody here like that this morning? I just want you to know, this isn't just you thinking about this. This is God working something, perhaps even eternally decreed in your heart. So why don't you just surrender right now, brother. Surrender right now, sister. Right now, say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. My hope is in Christ alone. And and, and you would be saved. You'd be saved. Now, I got to rush through this point because I got two other ones I want to make. But in verse 27, Jesus completes this word on election. By first affirming his deity, you will see this from dude all through the Gospels. He wants you to know he is no JV God. He is on the varsity. He is very God of very God. He says, Jesus, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. What would you say if I said, you know what? I had a revelation. God has handed all things over to me. What would you say? I'd find myself like this or kicked out of here. Rightly so. Only God can say that, right? In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 plays it out. Jesus must reign until he has put all things under his feet, and then he delivers up the kingdom to God, even the Father. So he affirms his deity. He also does it by saying this, and no one knows the Son except the Father. There's some exclusivity going on there, right? That's referencing the eternal triune relationship they have as the first and second person of the triune Godhead. But now he closes this section by emphasizing a truth that flows out of election, namely something we call the efficacious call. You ever heard of that expression? The efficacious call, there is a general call that God offers sincerely to all humanity to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. It's a sincere general call. But there is a specific call in which he actually raises that person from the dead. On the spot. Look at what it says. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Where do you see that physically illustrated in the ministry of Jesus Christ? Think of Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? Dead in the ground four days. They didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have modern day embalming. They say when you get here, he stinketh in the old version. And he probably did behind that tomb. And yet Jesus says these words, 
Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? He steps out of the grave alive. That was an efficacious call illustrated. And the Bible says we're born dead in trespasses and sins, rejecting the light freely offered to us, but in his mercy, God raises spiritually dead people to life. Have you been raised to spiritual life? I don't know about that. Here's the answer. What have you done with Christ? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? If so, it's because while you were reading the Bible or hearing a call from a pastor or reading the gospel tract, it's because the Son of God was revealing himself to you. What a privilege that is. Now, sometimes people say the doctrine of election stifles evangelism. According to Jesus, it actually stirs it. Some people uh, say election is an impediment to evangelism. But what we see right here, it's actually an incentive. Do you know Jesus talked about that in John chapter 10? He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, other sheep have I, and they will hear my voice, and they will come, and I must go get them. In other words, there are people whom God has said from eternity past, mine, and I'm going to go get them. And that is why these words, we're going to see it in just a moment, on praising the Father for the gracious truth of election are followed by a remarkable invitation. We'll get there in 30 seconds, but I just want to emphasize verse 26 one more time. Yes, Father, read this with me. For such was your gracious will. I said the grace of election because it is gracious because no one deserves it. No one gets worse than they deserve, and a lot of people get, some people get a whole lot better than they deserve. No one, no one deserves it. And second of all, God saves the most unlikely. Like if you were to line people up, and like that person will come to Christ, that person will never come to Christ. Boom, the kingdom of God turns that upside down. We're, we're going to see that momentarily. But I, I, I do close the first point with this. Jesus strategically praises the Father aloud for the grace of election. Therefore, if we would be like Jesus, we ought to do the same. Amen? That's what Paul does to the church of Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. He says, but we're bound, brothers, to give thanks to God because in the beginning he chose you for salvation through belief of the truth. Now, we're going to go to the second point. Jesus gives us, verse 28, a remarkable invitation. Before I get to the second point, I want to note something. I want to note something, because have you ever heard, ever heard people say, kind of generically, you need God in your life? Now, sometimes they may actually be meaning the God of the Bible revealed in Jesus Christ. So I, I don't want to just beat up that generic expression. But a lot of times, it's just part of the super sappy, self-centered, narcissistic American so-called Christianity. Just God in your life. Add him to the, to, you know, the, the charm basin of your life. What's interesting is Jesus does not say, come to God, all who are weary and heavy laden. What does he say? Come to me. He says, come to me. Now, you say Jesus is God. Of course he is. He's already taught that in many places. But the po- he, he's saying John 14, 6 truth here. When he said, no one comes to the Father but through me, for I am the way and the truth and the life. So if you want to get to God, because a lot of people say, well, you know, they worship God, but not just Jesus. No, they don't worship God. 
Because there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.15. Now, to the point, don't miss this. I love this. You should shout. You should say hallelujah. Maybe run a lap. That's never been done here that I know of, so let's do it today. He says, he doesn't say come to me. He doesn't say come to me. This, all who have something to offer me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, come to me, all who have it all together. He doesn't say, come to me, those of you who are absolutely killing it in life. He doesn't say that. Praise God, because that would leave me out. And I suspect you as well. He says, all who labor. Come to me, all who labor. And that's referring, a word referring to heavy, grueling toil, and more specifically, the intensely weary state it leaves us in. You ever been just intensely weary? I think obviously, he's not just talking about physical weariness, right? He's talking about being intensely weary emotionally. Most of us have been there. Intensely weary mentally. Intensely weary psychologically. Intensely wearing spiritually. And I think that word, as contrasted with the word to come, I'll explain that in a minute, refers to the internal stuff of guilt and shame that we feel because of our sin. And the weariness of trying to find this rest he's talking about in all the wrong places. Now, I don't want anyone here to say, well, this is just theological stuff you're talking about. No, this is just not theological data that has no relevance for life. I would say to you, it's for this very weariness that people are often in life brought to despair. That people often make really bad decisions out of that despair, out of that brokenness. That people often go very sideways in their life. And yes, because of this, sometimes even choose to end their life. I read about a man named Joseph Porter. 1930, highly renowned, respected New York State Supreme Court Justice. I think it was April of that year. He hailed the cab in the streets of New York, waved goodbye to his friends after enjoying a really nice meal with a bunch of his friends at an upscale New York restaurant. And that was the last he was ever seen. It's one of the great missing, unsolved missing person cases of American history. For 30 years, they, 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 they tried to figure it out. Some surmised it was the mafia. They didn't like the, judge, the ruling that he was making on the Supreme Court bench. Some said maybe he was kidnapped and it went sideways. Some said maybe he took an alias and just got out of the country. Murder, all kinds of things. It was never fully resolved but the greatest clue came from a note attached to a really big check written to his wife, found in his apartment complex by investigators some days later. It said this, I am weary, love Joe. Now what does that mean? We don't know, but maybe it was this intense weariness that causes so many people to cash out of life. If not literally in so many other ways figuratively. Are you weary? Are you weary? Are you weary? 
Jesus says, come to me, come to me. I, I came for weary people. That's why I came. And then you have this other expression. I wish I could just sit there because I just think this is such a kindness from the Lord to make it so plain like this. He goes on to say, and are heavy laden. Now, if weariness or the labor refers to internal stuff, I would believe that the heavy laden refers to the external stuff dumped on us by living life just simply in a fallen world. Now, the first century Jews, hearing about yokes, and we'll get to that, and heavy laden, they probably would have thought of the crazy law addition and twisting and all of that that the Pharisees did. You, you, you probably read about the Pharisees had all these additions to the actual Torah or law of God. Some silly ones, like they said, if you want to be a righteous man, you, you, you couldn't buy food off a common man, so you don't go to McDonald's, which may not be a bad idea, but that's a whole other thing right there. Why? Because you don't know if that guy's tithed on that, and therefore you would be doing a sinful thing. They said if you were to write on the Sabbath, you could only write Hebrew words consisting of two letters because three letters would be, would be work, and that would be a violation of the prohibition against working. Now, those are silly ones, but they strap people down with weighty stuff. Don't you remember Jesus himself telling the Pharisees that they put burdens on people's backs, remember that, that they themselves cannot even bear them, they can't bear themselves. So in the words of, of one commentator, are you weary of to-do list religion? You weary of that? Maybe you grew up under a heavy-handed yoke of a twisted form of hyper-legalizing legal, uh, Christianity. Just legalism run amok. Or maybe you were raised in some other religion that likewise said you need to perform your way into God's probationary favor and then keep performing to stay in, again, his probationary favor. And for a lot of people when they're in that, the weight just crushes them. It's just crushing weight. Who, we, we can't do that. And some people turn away all the more from God because of that. We all know people like that, right? Maybe in God's kindness and sovereignty, you're such a person, or at least you're, that seed is growing in your heart right now. And maybe it, may, it just might be the weight thrown on you of a difficult situation, a long-term sickness, an unmet expectation, a difficult relationship, an unresolved conflict, and it's all so heavy. Jesus says, you can come to me. Come to me with your interior stuff and come to you with the exterior stuff. Maybe you would say, you don't know me. There's no way God would ever want me. No way. Jesus says, I know that you fill in the blank. And if that blank were filled in in front of everybody right here, you would probably never show your face here. Jesus says, I know that blank. He says, I came to call the weary and the heavy laden. You say, maybe say, I was incarcerated. Jesus would say, oh, we've got some Mexicans in the Bible. I can work with them too. Come on in. They, 
Jesus says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, you can be as white as snow. His blood can cleanse the deepest, darkest, foulest stain from anyone's record who turns to him. Anyone, anyone. So I I give to you again those words from Come Ye Weary. The only fitness he requires is for you to feel your need of him. And if you feel your need of him, then run to him. Because that feeling your need of him is him pulling you towards himself. Jesus, this text says, verse 28 again, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He offers you a rest that no hobby can give you. That no hobby can give you. That no home can give you. That no promotion can give you. That no party can give you. That all the validation by the people that count in the world can give you. He can give you a deep soul rest. A deep soul rest. A rest in this life and eternal rest in the life to come. A rest right now and a rest forever with him. Augustine said, our hearts find no rest until they find the rest in you, O Lord. So I want you to think, I'm closing out the second point. I want you to think about being invited to some fancy Big wig, big wig banquet they have for politicians or celebrities or whatever, okay? You're told, you're invited, but there's, there's three conditions. Number one, you better wear some fine clothes, like a $10,000 suit out of Italy, um, a $15,000 dress out of France, something like that. You're like, I don't have anything like that. I've got a tuxedo t-shirt. I don't think that would qualify. Can't do that. Also, even though uh, there's going to be top-end caterers, we're asking everyone to bring some really expensive, unique food. So you can bring either 100 pounds of caviar or 100 pounds of, uh, what's that, Wagyu uh, steak at like, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks a pound. We want 100 pounds of that. I I don't have the, the pocketbook for that. Oh, and one other thing. To have a seat at the table, you need to bring $50,000. That's the cost of a ticket. Well, I certainly can't do that. Jesus is inviting all of us to the ultimate banquet. He provides the dress, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. At the cost of the cross, he robes you in his perfection so you can stand before the living God, not as if you would never sin, but more than that, righteous as Christ because you're in Christ. Oh, and that food, Jesus says, I got that covered. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Oh, and the seat of the table, you not only have a seat at the table, when you come to Christ, it says you are right now seated with him in the heavenly places. You're in Christ and Christ is in you. This mystical, glorious union between the believer and Christ. This is a remarkable invitation. So again, who is it that needs to come to Jesus Christ? He'll clothe you, he'll feed you, and he will seat you in his kingdom. Now, the truth is, as believers, experientially, we often step away from the table, right? 
and we lose the rest that we got at conversion, right? Did you notice that he goes on to say, not only come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He goes on to say, verse 29, that you will find rest for your souls. You will find it. So the third point I want to make is, Jesus calls us to unqualified submission. He says, take my yoke upon you. And if you're actually being honest with the text, you say, well, wait a second. That seems like a little bait and switch, right? I mean, I thought the whole thing about coming to you was no more yokes, yoke free. But there is no such thing as being yoke free. That's a myth. I thought Jesus freed us from yokes. Yes and no. He frees us from all the wrong yokes, but he puts us in the right yoke, which is himself. Jesus, in coming to Christ, listen, coming to Christ is not going to fix all your problems. I got to tell you that. It may even add a few more to the hopper. But it fixes your ultimate problem, alienation from God, and he actually, through this yoke, gives you the gear not to avoid reality, but to walk through it in a righteous, godly way. There is no such thing as an unyoked person, just so you know. There's nobody around here walking around, and I'll explain what a yoke is if you don't know what it is in just a second. Every human is yoked to something. The Pharisees were yoked to the law. You might be yoked to an idol, something. But the myth of total freedom from a yoke is just a lie. You say, it was just me and myself. Then you are a yoke to the worst tyrant of all, yourself, your flesh. Uh, somebody asked these rhetorical questions. Would you say a fish was free if it was delivered from the bondage of water through a hook in the mouth? Is it free now from the yoke of water? Would you say a mighty oak tree, if a storm came through, freeing the root system from the yoke of soil, that it was now a free oak tree? No. That fish was meant to be in the yoke of water. Tree was meant to be in the yoke of the soil. And you, uh, image bearer of the living God, you were made to be in one yoke, and that yoke is in Christ. That's what you were made. And as believers, ongoing and growing rest and freedom from the weariness and weight of life is found in that one yoke that we're supposed to be in, the yoke of Christ. That's why Jesus says, take my yoke upon me. That's what he's saying. So now, what is a yoke? Very simply, a long piece of wood with two metal or other or wooden hoops in it that would yoke up two beasts, say oxen, so that through their shared energy, they could pull, say, a cart or a plow. Have you ever seen a picture of that? I was showing Titus a picture of a yoke online. You guys know what I'm talking about? So when he says, take a yoke upon me, he says, that, that's, that's what he's referring to. Only if we press that imagery a little bit further, we should see Jesus Christ as this massive ox, and we're this puny little calf who can hardly walk, right? But we're yoked up together. That's the imagery that he is giving. So the question is, how do I stay in this one good yoke I was made to wear? 
where he says, take my yoke upon you. How do I stay in that yoke? And I think it's really simple. The idea of the yoke is submitting, and this is where we get submission from, submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord. As you yoke up with him, okay, as you submit to him, he provides the strength. You see that picture right there? He provides the strength. Oh, obviously then the rest that he's talking about is not, you know, your toes in the sands and a pina colada in your hand kind of rest, though it's okay to go to the beach and have a pina colada. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about, this rest, is his presence in walking with us through the downs and ups and ups and downs of life, and we'll have all of that. That's what he's talking about. And here's the thing. He's not going to chew you out and say, you're not really pulling much of this plow. You're not pulling much of this cart. No, doesn't not our text say he is gentle and lowly in heart? Isn't that beautiful? He's not going to say, you're not doing your part. He just wants us to trust him and yoke up with him and submit to him and walk with him. Find rest for your souls. And that's why he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I am entering the finish line. There's something part and parcel that goes with yoking up with him or submitting to him. And you can read it for yourself. Take my yoke upon you and do what? What's the next expression? Learn from me. Learn from me. Learn from me. Learn from me. And it's an interesting uh, expression. It could be translated, learn from me. Or it could also faithfully be translated, learn of me. Do you get the difference? I think both are there. In other words, Jesus is not just the curriculum, learn of me, but he's also the professor, learn from me. He's the subject master and he's the master teacher, Jesus Christ. Ralph West tells the story of the founder of the Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, he was an ethicist, a teacher. His name is T.B. Mastin, wrote 20 books, most after which he retired. This man, several years ago, was dying in a hospital in Fort Worth at age 90. He's got one foot in the grave. I mean, he's dying. Somebody visits him, and they notice Dr. Mastin with his Greek New Testament. And he's writing notes in the margin. He says, what are you doing? He says, I'm just writing what Jesus is teaching me about following him, uh, what I'm learning today. The guy's got one foot in the grave. He's about to meet face-to-face the Lord. And he's still learning from him and of him. And Ralph, Ralph West said in that memorable sermon to his congregation, so what's your problem? What's your problem? What's my problem? This man is about to meet his maker face-to-face. He's walked with him all his life, and he's still learning of him. Are you learning of Jesus? Are you learning of him? I mean, are you really drawing close to him in intimacy? You have a living, vibrant relationship with him through which life-giving sap flows. See, I would say a lot of heaviness and a lot of weariness, internal and external stuff that we experience, and ironically blame on God, would have been avoided if we had submitted to him and learned of him in the first place. And the weariness and the heaviness that we're going to experience just by living in a fallen world, there's going to be a lot of that. Sometimes we barely pull through just flat out struggling because we're not in the yoke. We're not learning and we're not submitting. And it's a missed opportunity to grow. 
So the same promise of what you got when you came to Jesus Christ in salvation is the same promise as there as you grow in sanctification. Verse 28, I will give you rest. Verse 29, you will find rest for your souls. So I'm closing now. I want us to feast on these words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What do these words mean to you where you're living right now in your stage of life?